Hey, and welcome to Hypnotize Me, the podcast about hypnosis, transformation, and healing. This is Dr. Elizabeth Bonet, and I'm your host. This podcast is not a substitute for mental health treatment, nor should it be. If you need therapy or hypnotherapy, please seek a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do that at my website, drlizhypnosis.com. That's D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. Now on to our episode. everyone, welcome. Dr. Liz here, your host of the podcast, Hypnotize Me. I want to give a special welcome to anyone who's listening to this for the first time. I have such a wonderful interview for you today. This is airing in February 2019, and we're continuing with the month of love. Last week, I did a whole episode with Jaya about your erotic blueprint. Very fun episode. And this week, I'm talking to Oren J. Sofer, who wrote the book, Say What You Mean, all about communication, and it's really using nonviolent communication in your own personal relationships. So he translates that system so that it's usable for everyday life. Just an update on right eye. Some of you have been asking and know that I had early cataracts and had cataract surgeries in December 2018. Right Eye is doing much better. I was actually having a difficult time coming off the steroid drops. So finally, what I did is I went up to one of my mentors in Boca. I have two mentors. One is in Boca Raton, Florida, Marty Nathan. And I said, please help me with this because I do a lot of self-hypnosis, but in this case, I think I needed someone who had 30 years of experience, and that is Marty. So he did a hypnosis for me, and the inflammation stayed down, and I was able to come off the drops, temporarily at least. Still having some stuff go on, but inflammation is not the issue anymore. So that's fantastic, right? Go hypnosis. And if you're looking for a really good hypnotherapist with 30 years of experience, check out his website, martinnathan.com in Boca Raton, Florida. I also want to mention before we dive into the interview that Oren gave me permission to air one of his audios that goes with the book. And that's going to air on the podcast next week. And it's about letting go and meeting your needs. Those two usually don't go together. We get into this idea that we have to hold on to meet our needs. But this exercise is about letting go and meeting your needs. So it's a really nice meditation and it's going to air next week. So keep an eye out for it. All right, people, enjoy the interview. Hi, Oren. Welcome to Hypnotize Me. Thanks. Hi, Elizabeth. So I am here with Oren J. Sofer, who is the author of Say What You Mean. And I have to tell you, Oren, that I had cataract surgeries in December. I had early cataracts. Mm. And so my computer and reading time was very limited to about 10 mm. minutes at a session. But I loved your book so much that I was like, I will work my way through this book. It was absolutely wonderful to read, an absolutely wow. beautiful book. And oh. um, I managed to do that before our interview. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm really touched to hear all of that. Yes. And then, by coincidence, I'm a fan of the 10% Happier podcast. 
Dan Harris. Mm-hmm. And by coincidence, I opened the 10% Happier app just yesterday, New Year's Day. And I haven't opened it in forever. I listen to the podcast, but the app is sort of like I've been med- a meditator for almost 30 years now. So I tend to do that without the help of apps these days. <laughs> But I opened yeah. it, and there you were as one of the lesson people. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm interviewing him <laughs> you know, oh, like in yeah, yeah. a day or two. So that was a, a wonderful coincidence to see that. So for listeners who aren't familiar, the 10% Happier app is a meditation app, and it has all these wonderful lessons in it as well as meditations. So Oren is one of the teachers on there. So can you tell me – why you decided to write this book. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. Um, You know, I I think there's kind of two different angles or two different reasons. One was um, I want to help people with an area that I think is one of the most important areas in our lives that many of us have the least training in, which is our communication. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's having a difficult relationship with one's boss at work um, or having problems in, a, you know, a marriage or an intimate relationship or, you know, even just with friends, uh, difficulties come up, particularly when f- friends have different political views than we have. Um, the communication breakdown can have such an effect, such a negative effect on our life and the inverse when we're able to actually navigate conversations with more ease the quality of our relationships increases and we have a lot more fulfillment and happiness in our lives. So that was one of the main reasons was wanting to get these tools to people because I feel like they're so invaluable uh, and accessible, but not available. And then the other reason was more personal in the sense that, you know, it's, it's the culmination of the last 20 years of my own contemplative practice. And I wanted to offer something that felt uh, whole, you know, like I can mm-hmm. I can synthesize the things that I've learned in a way. So there's a there's a a certain kind of satisfaction personally in putting something out there that feels like it's uh, an expression of my life's work at this point. Wonderful, it's wonderful. I love both of those, and I think they come through so clearly in the book. It's um, very heartfelt intention behind it is mm-hmm. what came through it. And when you say a culmination of your contemplative practices, yeah, what do you mean by that? Do you mean meditation as well as you're using the nonviolent communication skills? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean all of it. You know, um, I started the work of healing and transformation and introspection with meditation, with mindfulness practice. So that was kind of the first introduction I had to the possibilities for not only finding more meaning in life and healing, but um, kind of understanding oneself and what it is to be here uh, on a deeper level. Uh, But then from there, as I talk about in the book, I found that the meditation practice uh, left certain gaps in terms of how to really stay connected to it and live from that place in my relationships and my conversations. So fairly soon after, I found Marshall Rosenberg, who is the founder of Nonviolent Communication. Mm -hmm. 
And some of us like to say that nonviolent communication is an awareness practice masquerading as a communication technique. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Because it's really, as I say in the book over and over again, it's not about what we say. You know, it's really so much of communication is about where we're coming from, our body language, and what's Mm -hmm. not being said, what's being communicated in other ways. And in order to really... Uh, transform our communication and have better relationships and conversations, we need to work uh, with our thoughts, our impulses, our beliefs, our perceptions, the things that are that are deeper in our heart, in our mind. So the nonviolent communication training is a form of contemplative practice for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last um, discipline that informs my teaching is the work of Peter Levine with somatic experiencing, which is a form of healing trauma uh, that's based on understanding the nervous system. And mm-hmm. that too is really grounded in in uh, different kinds of awareness. So all of those together are what I'm referring to by contemplative practice. Okay, got it. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about nonviolent communication? As a therapist, I've been aware of it for... Uh, 20 years or so. Mm. I read it very early in my training to be a therapist. In fact, I think I may have even read it before I went into graduate school. I'm not quite sure. But can you let the listeners know what you mean by nonviolent communication? Sure. Yeah, it's it's one of the questions that comes up. As soon as people hear it, they go, what do you mean by that? And you're like, what is violent communication? Uh-huh. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah violent communication could, is like eighty percent of communication. It feels like these yeah, days sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's that's why I'm uh, the timing of this book is is very uh, apt. You it know, is given every everything that's happening. Um, so the 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 name nonviolent communication refers to a few different things. It's the name that was given to this set of principles and practices uh, devised by a man named Marshall Rosenberg, who I mentioned earlier, who was a psychologist. And the the aim of nonviolent communication is, is really to learn how to integrate nonviolence into all areas of our life inwardly, to, to bring nonviolence to our, our thoughts, our words, our actions, interpersonally in terms of dialogue, communication, conflict resolution, so that's the main use that people think of, but it also applies to working with groups, with facilitation and decision-making, and, and even on larger levels, collectively or systemically, looking at frameworks for transforming the use of power, um, or how do we envision and create new structures and policies that serve human needs and create a world where more basic human needs are being met. The The term was chosen by Marshall Rosenberg specifically to place this set of practices within the context of Gandhian and Kingian nonviolence. Uh, he very much saw these tools uh, not only as a form of personal transformation or interpersonal conflict resolution and communication, but as a tool for social change. Mm-hmm. And um, what he found just kind of very briefly to say was that the ways that we think and speak have have a, a, a very close correlation 
to whether or not we will see violence as a viable strategy for meeting our needs in difficult circumstances. So when we think and speak in certain ways, we violence makes sense. And when we think and speak in other ways, uh, we're able to stay connected to the shared humanity that we have in compassion. So th- those are some of the reasons why it's named nonviolent communication. Mm. Okay. Wonderful explanation. Thank you. So you're saying that language often, for, or he originally said that, but you also say this in your book, language forms our intentions and vice versa. Our intention forms language that we yeah. use. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The two, the two reinforce each other. One of the main kind of transformations that, that we explore in nonviolent communication is the con- concepts like deserve and should and uh, right and wrong, those all have certain uses, but they they come with certain risks and costs. And so if I believe uh, that what you did was bad and wrong, uh, then p- punishing you and maybe even hurting you makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I change the way I'm viewing things to, to see them in terms of basic human needs, you know, what, what you did isn't meeting my needs for safety and well-being and respect for myself, for my loved ones or my community. Now that's a very different approach because uh, it's not to say that, you know, I'm not making a statement philosophically about whether or not there's such a thing as, eth- you know, morally right or wrong actions. I'm just saying that the perspective is when we approach things from that way, it's a lot easier to justify the use of violence. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we approach things from one of the core principles of not just nonviolent communication, but humanistic psychology of human needs, that all humans are motivated by an attempt to meet our needs, that we're, we're, we're logical creatures in that sense, even though we're not always aware of it or, or successful at meeting our needs, we're trying to satisfy these uh, these deeper aspects of ourselves that are shared, that are universal. Mm-hmm. And when we can think and speak and perceive in that way, what we find is that our commonalities outweigh our differences and we're able to stay connected to one another and find ways of speaking and working together um, that, are, that are more collaborative and, and nonviolent. Agreed. Some of my questions, though, are about what to do when you don't have someone that agrees with those goals. You talk about neutrality of presence, right? Like there, that you're both agreeing to be present here. Um, you're both agreeing to try to communicate your best, right? Like mm. that's an easier situation. Let's say when, yeah. when two people are saying, okay, let's oh, bring yeah. good heartfelt intention to this conversation. Right? Oh yeah, and yeah. often what I do in my my own relationships and what I often recommend is you can actually even state your intention at the beginning. That's so right. My intention of this conversation is to create understanding, compassion, to lessen my own fear that's come up, like something like that. This is an example. Sure. Yeah. I love your definition of intention as well, Mm. then I'm going to read it. It's from page 60. Intention is the motivation or inner quality of heart behind our words and actions. And then later you say intention is the single most powerful and transformative ingredient in dialogue. 
I think mm-hmm. that's so powerful. It really is. Like what intention mm-hmm. am I coming from? What intention, right. what do I want to create here between us? Even if it's a group or an individual. Yeah. And what is yours to get clear on that too, to ask the other person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really important point. Some point, important points you raise, Elizabeth. I kind of wanted. To, I wanted to sort of take them one at a time. And so the the first thing you're you're pointing to is the sense of yeah, it's a lot easier when both people have a shared intention, or yes. a shared explicit desire to hear one another or to work things out. Obviously, that's the ideal situation. And right, the reality is that that's not what's happening most of the time. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, even in it, I work a lot with couples. And yeah. you know, here it's an individuals too, but even with your loved ones, that's not always happening. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, one of the one of the things that points to particularly in intimate relationships where both people love each other and on some level they do want to work things out is is the power of our conditioning. Mm-hmm. The how deeply rooted our habits are in terms of communication and relationship when there's a, a when there's difference or when we have the perception that our needs might not get met. Mm -hmm. When that perception arises, the default training that we have from our family, our culture, our religion, our society, based on our social location and how we grew up is generally, uh uh-oh, you know, this is not good. I better make sure that I'm gonna be okay. I gotta defend myself, Mm -hmm. protect myself, attack the other person, gotta be right, blame, judge, all of that kind of conditioning comes out and then we can't hear each other. So part of the work is beginning to be aware of that conditioning, how it shows up in our body as well as in our our mind and our words and learning a different way to relate. Now, if these tools only worked when the other person had them or wanted to engage in a mutually beneficial you know, conversation, they wouldn't be very helpful yeah, because, true. <laughs> because, because most people don't have these tools and most people when there's a difference or a conflict or they feel threatened in some way are not operating from a, from an assumption of, Oh, well, let's just try to work this out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the reality is that, you know, conversation and relationship is co-created. Yes. It, t- it takes two people to have a conversation or a relationship. And because of that, that that means two very important things. Number one, it means that if one person changes how they're speaking and relating, by definition, it will change the conversation and the relationship. Mm-hmm. So it only takes one person to start to change things in a relationship. But at the same time, that also means, because there's someone else involved, that there are factors that are beyond our control. And that sometimes in, we can have the best of intentions and be the most highly trained, skillful communicator in the world. And if the other person's heart is closed or if they've made up their mind that they're not interested in listening or engaging, Mm -hmm. we can't change that. So, so both are true in the sense that we can change things based on how we approach the situation. And there are situations where there's factors outside of our control. I want to tell a story maybe about, about this. Mm-hmm, um, this is a story that I tell in the book about a man named Daryl Davis, who was uh, an African-American musician. And he was playing a gig uh, in the Deep South. 
and he played piano. And uh, after the after the gig, um, a white gentleman came up to him and said, uh, "You know, you play pretty good for uh, for an African American." He probably didn't use that term. I'm not sure what what term he used to refer to his his race or skin color. I mm-hmm. uh, said, "You know, you play pretty good. You 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 know, you're almost as good as Jerry Lee Lewis." So Daryl Davis kind of laughs and smiles. He says, I, "You know, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play piano from people like me." you know, from African-Americans, which this white gentleman didn't know. She said, oh, I didn't know that. So they sit down, they start talking, having a drink. And it turns out that this guy's a member of the Ku Klux Klan and that Daryl Davis was the first African-American he'd ever actually met. So to make a long story short, um, they develop a friendship. And over time, just through showing um, respect, kindness, interest in this this other man's point of view uh daryl davis wins him over as a friend and this uh this man ends up leaving the ku klux klan and not only that so daryl davis starts working on a book about uh these conversations in the kkk and and he uh, ends up getting connected to many other members of the kkk uh down there in this in this area in the south and through the power of kindness, friendship, and conversation, he ended up convincing over 200 members of the KKK to leave the organization and give up their robes. Some of them actually gave their robes to him. Incredible. So this is, you know, and he didn't know nonviolent communication, but he understood the principles. He understood the power of intention, that when we approach someone with an intention to understand to really connect with them on a human level and to show them respect and kindness that over time that can have an effect that can ha- that can be transformative and and because of that because of who he was and the way that he related eventually these men started taking an interest in him and his life and by getting to know him ended up changing their views and their beliefs mm-hmm. so when you're dealing with let's say someone who you see is so far from your perspective or not open right. to hearing what you're having to say, you're saying um, that may be the case, which you said earlier, it may be a relationship or a conversation is just not going to happen no mm-hmm. matter your intention. But the, the other piece of that is it could change perspectives. It could open conversation that perhaps you didn't expect it to even when you're coming with the intention of, mm. of knowing who someone is and truly being interested in who they are and what their perspective is. And it sounds like also like setting yours aside for a little bit. Yeah, possibly, possibly. I mean, I think there's a, there's a few, obviously, you know, this, this story about Daryl Davis is, uh, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's, um, that's the ideal situation in the sense that, you know, um, eventually well, the- it sounds ideal, but it, I'm imagining at the time it, there's probably some fear associated with oh, that absolutely. or, you know, what absolutely. am I doing here? Or, yeah. you know, any yeah. of that, that feeling, right. it sounds like he was very courageous too. Right. Yeah. I don't know who he was as an individual, but it yeah. took some courage to even do that. Absolutely. And, and, um, he, he talks about that in his book, but I think what I meant was it was an ideal outcome Oh right? yes, in, in the mm-hmm. sense that I, so, so it was an ideal outcome, but I think that, um, 
there's there's a few a few aspects here. So number one is the recognition that when we're fixated on a particular outcome, if we're trying to change someone's mind, that actually shuts down the possibility for dialogue. Because other people will feel that. They'll feel that we have an agenda, that we're not actually open, not only to hearing them, but to our position being changed. So so real dialogue, true dialogue means that we're listening with an openness to actually be transformed through the encounter. What that means for me is that in these difficult conversations or somebody who has very different views from us, um, I take as my goal in in some of these situations not to change the other person's mind, but to but to live and speak and engage in a way that's in line with my values, so that my definition of success is not based on the outcome. Did I win the argument? Did they agree with me? Did they change their view? But rather, you know, am I showing up in a way? Am I, re- am I listening and speaking in a way that has integrity, that reflects my deepest values for life? Mm-hmm. And what that does is, is often that will say more to the other person, how we are relating, how we are engaging, than anything we could say with our words, than anything we could convince them of. And on some level, that's, and, and that's what Daryl Davis was doing was he wasn't trying to change their mind. He was creating the conditions for them to to experience something different by focusing on the process of the conversation and creating connection and understanding rather than being narrowly focused on an outcome. We create the conditions for the other person to have a more open mind so that even if they don't see things from our point of view, our position becomes humanized in their eyes so there's another very powerful story about this that I tell in the book about a couple of groups of women uh, who met at a, a protest at an abortion clinic, and one group was pro-choice, the other group was pro-life. Mm-hmm. And you know, everyone's yelling at each other, signs and banners, and some of the women, you know, across the picket line, kind of somehow started talking and said, "This is ridiculous. You know, we're, we're not going to learn anything or get anywhere by just yelling at each other." So they decided to meet outside after the, you know, after the demonstration and a small group of women from each side started getting together uh, and talking and talking about their views and their religion and their values. But they also got to know one another. They got to know their families. They got to know their hobbies. And over several months, this went on, these, these meetings and conversations, focusing on the connection, focusing on trying to understand one another, right? Not, so what was so fascinating about this and I tell this story also in the book, was that none of the women changed their mind. None of their views changed. Mm -hmm. But when the women who were part of the pro-life group, when they heard through their network that somebody was coming, this happened in Boston, that someone was planning on coming to Boston to bomb an abortion clinic, Mm -hmm. they talked it over and they sent a message out through the network that said, don't come you are not welcome in our community. Now, to me, that's a success. Yes. Because because they didn't change their views, but they were not willing to use violence as a strategy 
to accomplish their aim. Because they understood and connected with the humanity of the other side, they respected the people on the other side, even though they disagreed with their views. So it's going to a deeper level of what do you value, not in terms of result, but in, in terms of process is what you're saying. Do, yeah. And what do yeah. you value? Do you value your own integrity as well? Right. So that can be as simple as how do I show up for this yeah. relationship or right. how do I show up for this person or I value just having a conversation, period, yes. and trying yeah. to create understanding. So you're seeing when, when you're struggling, go to that deeper level of values instead of, yeah. you know, you could go the opposite way easily, right, into defense or what you call a false feeling words, mm-hmm. I, I think is how you refer to them, right? which create disconnection instead of connection. Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we get defensive, when we start telling stories about, you know, you're attacking me, you're not, you know, you're ignoring me, you're belittling me. Those kind of, those are the false feeling words, these words that describe an emotion, but actually blame the other person by telling a story about what they're doing to us. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that what I'm, what I'm pointing to here is, is one, yeah, that we have a lot more strength and stability and staying power in a conversation when we're able to be aware of and stay connected to our deeper values and intentions. And I think the other thing I'm pointing to is, you know, particularly in these in these more difficult conversations that we need to have in our society today um, around real issues, you know, where the stakes are high, you know, we're talking about life and death and some of these in some issues, whether it's mm-hmm whether it's immigration or healthcare or tax policy, you know, the, these, these issues affect millions of people's lives directly in terms of their ability to meet their basic needs. Yes. Um, but what I'm, what I'm pointing to is also to take the long view, to recognize that change doesn't happen overnight and that the more we can start to build relationships of respect and trust and kindness, uh, relationships that have conversations that are that are based on those values, mm-hmm. um, that's going to create the conditions for actually starting to learn how to collaborate, how to say, you know, we don't need to agree actually on our views, but we can still work together to address the issues that are at hand. There's a colleague of mine um, uh, at the organization, one of the organizations I work for called Bay NVC, Bay Area Nonviolent Communication, mm-hmm. who worked in Minnesota with uh, a group of legislators uh, across the aisle uh, to craft bipartisan legislation on child custody. And this was a landmark case, and her, her name is Mickey Kashtan, and she worked really, really uh intensely for many months going back and forth and and meetings and on the phone with legislators on both sides. Again, the different camps that had different views about child custody never agreed on, on their views, but they were able to identify core principles or core needs. If we have legislation, it has to, it has to be able to do this in the end. They were able to, to, 
distill the views that they had down to certain specifics and craft legislation that that was passed unanimously by the state legislature. This is the first time it's ever happened. Wow. Without ever agreeing on their moral, ethical, or religious views politically, mm-hmm. but they were still able to work together. So one of the things that we're talking about here is is this ability to shift our to shift our focus from the surface level of an argument or a situation to a deeper level of the underlying needs is one way of putting it or the underlying objectives or goals like why what is it what is it about this particular situation that we're trying to accomplish and that takes training to be able to shift our attention. It's one of the most valuable and transformative tools that we teach in nonviolent communication. And um, that's kind of the one of the core practices in, in my book, which is to learn how to be aware of basic human needs in ourself and in someone else. And when we can do that, it changes everything. We have more choice in our life. We can understand other people better. Mm-hmm. We have more compassion. Uh, and there's more room to work creatively together because we're able to get underneath the the kind of narrow positions that we get locked in, in conflict and argument. When someone is struggling with really even identifying those core needs or being able to identify them in somebody else, how do you suggest that they um, begin to work with that? Yeah, thank you. That's that's such an important question, Elizabeth. Um, I think it's it's uh, imp- it's important to name the fact that for each of us, we have may have a different relationship with what I'm terming our, our needs. And um, maybe, maybe a, a good moment to just kind of try to define that word a little bit more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's meant by this word need is um, a core facet of human life that motivates us to act. And the understanding is that these needs are shared. So we have physiological needs for food, air, water, shelter. Those are obvious. But we also have relational needs for things like companionship, understanding, empathy, touch, love, uh, belonging, acceptance. Those are those are those are relational needs that we have as social creatures. And then we have what are what might be called higher needs or spiritual needs. Needs for needs for meaning, needs for contributing, to um, needs for peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so as human beings, we have these these different aspects of our heart, our consciousness that drive us in in, in life, and the socialization process often uh, distorts our relationship with these very, very kind of natural impulses towards wholeness, these natural impulses towards well-being. And then based on how we are socialized, based on the gender that we are socialized into, uh, based on, you know, the social location that we grow up in, our religion, our family of origin, the culture, and so forth, all of these forces will tend to 
transform our relationship with our needs in certain ways in order to fit in, in order to belong, in order to be accepted. So we might have a relationship with our needs that's very demanding, where we we kind of impose and push our needs and desires onto other people. Or we may be ashamed of our needs, or we may be very disconnected of them. We may have been socialized to believe, I don't have needs, you know, my job is to help others, or my job is to, you know, provide for the family, or, you know, my job is to make sure that everyone gets along and that there's harmony in the group and what I want doesn't matter as much as what others want. So there are all of these ways that we end up with kind of confused, unconscious or distorted relationships with our needs. And so there's a journey, there's a process of reclaiming our right to wholeness, of reclaiming our right to want what's deepest in us. And that doesn't mean that we that we attempt to meet our needs at others' expense. Mm-hmm. It means that we are willing to engage in a process of mutual exploration that says, here's what matters to me and I care about what matters to you. How do we work this out together? That's mm-hmm. the skill. That's the muscle that's that has atrophied in our, our society. Absolutely. We, we live, yes. Yeah. So we, we live in a world that's defined by separation where it's it's either or, either I get what I want or you get what you want, whether we're talking about an intimate relationship or the or the Congress. We need to re relearn this capacity to engage in interdependent relationships, to recognize that the only way human beings survive on the planet is by working together. And that means acknowledging not only my needs, but your needs also, and then and then working together to say, how do we hold these? Mm-hmm. So I'm aware I didn't answer your question. <laughs> well, it's so. a hard question, I have to say. Like, how do there you begin things- to work with that? You begin yeah. to identify it. Yes. Saying yeah. is, is what you're really saying. And and also redefining what that means right. to people. Right. That's and, the first step is understanding what needs are and redefining them. And then as as you're pointing to some of the next steps, one of the next steps, and this is this uh, most people might not think of this actually, but it's very powerful. One of the next steps is to develop a vocabulary is to just begin, and same thing with feelings and emotions. One one of the questions I get a lot at at workshops and retreats and trainings that I offer is, you know, I'm not in touch with my emotions. How do I feel my emotions more? Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't know what I need. How do I become aware of my needs? And the the first step is to just become familiar with the words and the concepts that represent them, because a lot of the times we just don't even have the language for it. So yes. in, yeah, therapists, yeah. and this is in my office too, but many therapists have the feeling chart. Exactly. You know, which is like, I don't even know how many words are on there. It's, Close to it's beautiful. It's beautiful <laughs> yeah, right. ha- having a chart like that. It points to the richness of human experience. Mm-hmm. But the, the tragedy is that there aren't needs charts in all of those therapist oh, yeah. offices. Oh, well, <laughs> totally to point to right. yeah. Because our, our emotions mm-hmm. are a reflection of our needs. Of our needs. We feel yes. things because there's something important to us. And that's where the real jewels are is, is becoming aware of why, of what matters to us. Yes. What is it that matters? And so looking at a needs list and just starting to identify, like, oh wow, look, I have a I have needs for play. I have needs for creativity. Mm-hmm. I have needs for rest. You know, I have I have needs for beauty. I have, you know, all of these needs that I was never aware of, you mm-hmm. know. And so that's the first step. And then from there, 
we start to explore what gets in the way. What are the beliefs? What are the blocks that say, oh, it doesn't matter, or I don't want to impose, or no one else cares, or it's not going to work anyway, or you know, all of the things that, that prevent us from actually being aware of and honoring our needs. So that hopeless, helpless kind of um, feelings that come up in people, really. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And working with others is very important. You know, a lot of our, most of our conditioning around our feelings, our needs, our communication, that was set in place through relationship. I I teach meditation. I'm a huge advocate of inward silent contemplation. Mm -hmm. And yet there are certain aspects of the psyche and the personality um, that are best addressed through relationship whether that's working with a therapist or going to uh, a communication retreat or a communication Mm -hmm. workshop or other forms of relational practice where we can start to actually contact and become aware of some of those wounds or blockages or core beliefs that uh, keep us living in ways that are not conducive to our happiness and well-being and that, that limit our ability to really share our gifts with the world. So you're saying this is, I think you referred to this somewhat in the beginning of the interview, but this is where this book picks up. It reminds me, I was at a meditation center, Green Gulch, which is outside of San Francisco, one year with one of my friends. And we were talking to a woman who had been there for, I don't know, three to six months. She had been there for months, not a weekend. Yeah. (laughs) And... We were talking to her and she said, you know, you're really the ones doing the hard work here because I get to stay here in this very protected circle of people, but you have to go out and go back to your lives and go back to your children and relate. And that's where the real work, she said, you quote unquote of meditation comes up because that's much more difficult than me sitting here and and meditating for 10 hours a day or six hours a day or whatever that was for her. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying like this book picks up that goal of relating. So let me take these meditation and mindfulness practices. And now what do I do when it's not an internal process, but it's a relational process. It's external. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the, and the book and the way, the way that I teach really brings those worlds together because they need each other. Mm-hmm. They need each other. If we if we only focus on the external, if we learn whether it's communication skills or family systems or you know any any of these very useful modalities for being in the world and having better relationships, if we only do the external work, it's not enough because we're not transforming or addressing the internal stuff. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if we only do the internal work, if we only sit in meditation or we only uh, look inwards, it doesn't translate. And so the two de- the two support, inform, and depend on each other. And it's one of the reasons why so many so much so much communication training is incomplete in my in my view is because it they it doesn't address the necessary internal foundations of communication, which are, as I talk about in the book, the sense of presence, the ability to be aware and grounded in one's own being. Mm-hmm. In, a, in in an interaction and the 
the role of intention, as you as you brought up earlier, to be aware of our intentions and to choose more consciously helpful intentions that are going to move in the direction that we want in our life and in our conversations. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. Thank you so much for this lovely discussion. Can you please tell people how to find you and how to find the book? Yeah, great. Sure. Well, this has been a pleasure, Elizabeth, being here on the show. And the the best way for folks to stay in touch is through my email list. It comes with a free guided meditation series and a small ebook on contemplative practice. And the easiest way to sign up for the email list is just by texting the word guided to the number 44222. So just that one word, G-U-I-D-E-D, guided to 44222. And it'll walk you through all the steps. And then um, folks can also find me on my website, orangejsofer.com, or on social media. Okay, wonderful. Their website, is that spelled out or the initial? It's spelled out O-R-E-N-J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R.com. Okay. You know, thanks wonderful. for asking. Thank you so much. And that information will also be in the show notes for people so that you don't have to hit rewind like 10 times, right? <laughs> What's the number to text to? <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. Great. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. It's been fun to chat. truly enjoying today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way, more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Peace.